0: everyone to episode 116, Functional Endothelium. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. Dalen, how's it going over there?
1: I'm feeling great. And I just saw a paper today that I'm going to share with the whole world You could live an extra 12 to 14 years, Kiki. And this isn't some homeopathic supplements nonsense by doing five things. One, not smoking. Two, BMI between 18.5 and 25 doable. All right. Three, 30 minutes of moderate exercise a day. Four, no more than one if you're a woman. Two, if you're a male, glasses of wine a day or equivalent. And five, diet rich in fruit, veggies, whole grains, low in red meat, and saturated fat and sugar. All right? I'm like at like three and a half out of five. I'm sure you're like four and a half to five out of five.
0: I think the one I've got issues with is the wine. Yeah, yeah, me too.
1: (laughs) Me too. I'm losing on the booze.
0: I drink all of it on the weekends. (laughs) people are weekend warriors when it comes to working out i am the wine warrior weekend wine warrior there we go
1: otherwise known as binge drinking okay
0: (laughs) all right let's move on let's
1: move on we're gonna live at least i'm gonna live maybe four years extra you're gonna live at least eight okay so keep on drinking girl yes
0: awesome I'm going to keep on drinking and keep doing this show, everybody. Let's get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter there and find all of our past episodes and other great resources. There are lots of them through Stem Cell Technologies. And, of course... Follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes will download automatically to your device if you have not done so previously. Today, we have another great show. Very excited to be speaking with Valeria Orlova from Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands to learn about her work assessing the function of stem cell-derived endothelial cells. You ready?
1: I can't wait. I can't wait. I love endothelium. I grew up on it like it was my Cheerios. And uh, we're going to talk to her about what defines endothelium because I have, I have some tough questions for Valeria here. Endothelium, IPS cells, ES cells. Is it really ECs? We'll see.
0: We will see.
1: Before we see anything, you're going to have to hear me. All right? Every week... We use this time to remind our listeners of Stem Cells' Connexon Science Newsletters. I'm going to do it again this week, all right? Another fun fact. I've told you before, I'm going to tell you again. These started with Dr. Alan Eves, Stem Cells President and CEO, compiling the first Connexon newsletter. It was called Cell Therapy News. He did it all by himself, he sent it to colleagues 16 years ago. Since then, we have a 1,000 issues of this publication, Cell Therapy News, that have come out, all right? And now there's 20 others, 20 weekly Connexon newsletters, Almost 70,000 subscriptions globally. Add your name to the list. Subscribe to Cell Therapy News, the original science newsletter Connecs on. As well as any of the others, 19 on weekly newsletters at stemcellnewsletters.com. Please do it. You won't regret it. Kiki, let's move on to the roundup, please.
0: The roundup, the roundup that keeps on giving episode after episode after episode. But what if your plastic could do that? That'd be good. Right? We're talking, everybody's talking about, oh, get rid of the single-use plastics. Stop using plastic straws. Stop using those plastic bags that you use once and they get peanut butter on the inside of them and then you throw them away. Cut that out. Cut it, right? That's the whole conversation these days. We have to minimize our plastic use because the majority of plastic cannot and is not recycled. Only about 10% of plastic made gets recycled. 10%. So the bulk of it is going into landfills. A lot of it is ending up in the oceans, ending up in our waterways. This isn't good. There's evidence suggesting that plastic has all sorts of effects. I mean, the jury is still out on the health effects of plastics in the environment, but there's evidence suggesting it's not great. However, a study in science from this last week finds that some researchers who have been working on this issue of making more easily recyclable plastic, these researchers Jianbo Zhu and his colleagues at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, have been developing a plastic using a new molecular conformation, a an organic ringed molecule monomer that can link together at room temperature to create very stable and rigid polymer chains. And that's one of the issues. Previous conformations of these plastics have been too soft for most uses that plastics are made for. And so they've been trying to create a more uh, robust plastic, and it seems That they have in the laboratory. This plastic linked together to create a very heat stable, very solid plastic. But then, when exposed to mild chemicals or a high enough heat, these polymers degraded right back to monomer molecules. And then they were able to repeat the cycle over and over again, suggesting that it might be an infinitely recyclable plastic. It's not perfect yet but they're working on it. And the idea is to commercialize it and to create what will be or could be a recyclable plastic that will not go into our landfills.
1: Oh man, we need it too. Forget about the landfills going into the oceans. All these sea animals, the turtle, the whale they are coming out of there. I got kilos of plastic in their bellies. I think this is half the battle. They, I heard another story that we haven't reported on, but I heard about it on the news. I haven't vetted it. But they have something that can break down. It's like not organic, but a biological thing that can like eat. eat. Plastic. So all the new plastic I be mean, this. We need to eat all that garbage that's out there and making an island.
0: So that one, it's actually a bacterium that was found in a landfill in Japan right. that creates an enzyme that breaks down plastic. These bacteria live on plastic and eat it, with, and they use this enzyme. And so in the laboratory, they have been able to actually make the enzyme and make it even more efficient. So this is potentially very good news for the plastic in the landfills. And then if we can create the recyclable stuff, we are on the right track. We can make a better earth. We can use the stuff here on the earth better. We can do this. And in the meantime, stop using single-use straws. Come on, you guys. (laughs) Who needs it? Moving on up, not just chemistry at the works, but genetic modification, which is going to make the world a better place. Researchers at Shanghai Xiaotong University have been looking into the genome of of a plant, Artemisia annua. And do you know what Artemisia annua is for, Dalen? No. Do you know what we use it for? Nope. Nope. Well, Chinese chemist Yu Yu Tu in 1972 was investigating Chinese remedies, and she discovered this plant, Artemisia annua, produces a compound called artemisinin, which is a compound used in anti-malarial drugs currently. It's one of the top used drugs. We can produce it in labs chemically, but it's much more expensive than it is to actually grow the plants that produce it naturally. And so these researchers and this woman, this Chinese chemist, she got the Nobel Prize, actually, in medicine in 2015 for this discovery. So this is a huge discovery. Artemisinin. Anyway, researchers trying to genetically modify, engineer the plants to produce more and better Artemisinin. Yeah, and so this is what they've published. They have been genetically modifying. They report in molecular plant, and they have boosted the level of this compound in the plant's leaves, which will potentially be really good news for producing this drug and reducing malarial load all around the world. Malaria is one of the worst diseases, killing about 440,000 people worldwide every year.
1: I bet there's a lot of people that would be against it because it's GMO. Don't you think? Probably. Even though it kills all those people, they'd say, yeah, but it's GMO. It's GMO. It's bad. bad."
0: Mm. No, I think in this case, genetic modification is going to, it will help humanity. And this sounds like really great news to me. More great news. Researchers have created a new antimicrobial coating that can go on the walls in hospitals and other places where, Superbugs, where bacteria that are resistant to all sorts of antibiotics like to live. In lab tests, this new compound, which is made of polyurethane, embedded with tiny semiconductor nanoparticles, quantum dots, and particles of a purple dye called crystal violet. Together, when the quantum dots absorb light, so basically you turn on the lights in a room, the paint, this this covering, this wall covering the quantum dots in it will absorb the light and transfer that energy to the dye, and the dye releases a reactive oxygen molecule that kills molecules. (laughs) So basically any microbe, any bacteria that would be sitting on this compound on the walls of a clean room at NASA or in a surgical room, a surgical chamber in a hospital, turn on the lights and the bacteria will be zapped. And in lab tests, it killed 99.97% of MRSA, the strain of Staphylococcus aureus that's resistant to methicillin and other antibiotics, and 99.85% of a multidrug-resistant strain of E. coli. And they were using lots and lots and lots, higher concentrations of microbes that are typically found in hospitals, suggesting that this is a very effective coating, and why aren't we using it yet?
1: I'll tell you why, because then you breed a whole new species of super staff MRSA that can walk and bite your
0: head off. That's, <laughs> That's right. They're coming to get you. There's nothing we can do. Oh, we got to learn how to live with them. We got to stop <laughs> fighting. Learn to live with them. Finally, I love the bird news. And this story came up a couple of weeks ago, the March 28th. Journal of the Royal Society Interface, and then another study in Current Biology talking about a molecule in the eye of the birds. One of the studies looked at zebra finches, the other looked at European robins, and both of them were looking into these class of proteins called cryptochromes, and their cryptochromes are involved in circadian rhythms, and several cryptochromes change throughout the day. They are on a light-dark cycle of sorts and some of these proteins are thought to react to the earth's magnetic fields and so that's what the researchers were looking for they found a couple of cryptochromes cryptochrome one and two that follow a circadian rhythm rising and falling over the day but another one cryptochrome four did not its levels remained constant over a 24-hour cycle. But in European robins, this cryptochrome 4 had higher levels during the migratory season. And the researchers in that study found cryptochrome 4 in an area of the robin's retina that receives a lot of light, suggesting that it could help in acting as a compass. The cryptochrome 4 is not proven yet. They need to actually show the interaction with a magnetic field, but they do show that this could potentially help and they it would show up in the bird's vision as light and dark patches that would correspond to the magnetic fields around our earth
1: part of that that i love is like how it would manifest like the magnetism would be light or dark and yeah. it makes me feel like oh man it'd be so awesome if you were like an x-man and you could reactivate that and then then if then I come around to, them, I'm like, but that would really be the most useless superpower on earth. Would there be any use for magnetism?
0: I can see it? magnetic fields. And we like, oh, that's
1: awesome.
0: So you what? have <laughs> magnets on your refrigerator. Yes, I do. No. <laughs> you got me. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but I think I think the thing, the story here that's really exciting are these researchers who are just funneling down in this scientific inquiry to find out how birds respond. What is the mechanism that birds use to respond to magnetic fields? We know that magnetic fields are important for their navigation and their migration, but we've never really understood how they do it. it used to be, oh, they've got magnetic particles in their beak, like there are little mm-hmm. chunks of iron in their beak. And then it was like, oh, no, there's chunks of iron in the brain cells. No, there's not. Oh, there's chunks of iron in their eye. No, there's not. You know, it's been this digging down, digging down, digging down over several decades now coming into these, you know, light sensing circadian rhythm related proteins. I don't know. I think it just makes the story that much more interesting.
1: It is. It's a good story about the evolution of hypothesis. Science in in front of your face, right?
0: (laughs) Science in your eye. (laughs) 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 <laughs> all right, Dalen, yeah. that does it for me. What's going on in your stem cell world?
1: I got not science in your eye necessarily, because who wants that? I got science for your brain. though. How about that? We got a lot of brain stories because, you know, I love it. Everything that gets funded is neural. All right. Is that my bitterness talking? <laughs> neural does actually get funded a crap load by that age, maybe disproportionately. That's why I'm going to tell you three stories about neural, because that's what you like. Clearly, America all right, this first one, bitterness put aside. We're going to talk about ECs today, so I guess I should get excited. Get excited. Uh, but first of the brain, first of the brain. This is a cool kind of biotech story. It's in Stem Cell Reports from Clive Svedenson's group. It's a story about using IPS derived neural progenitor cells as kind of a vehicle for therapeutic delivery. So, you know, neurodegenerative disease oftentimes has its basis you cellular dysfunction, the, this, the niche is all screwed up, who knows. But at the end of the day, you know, having a therapeutic delivery directly within the brain could address neurodegenerative disease, or it could address like maybe cancer, if you want to target glioblastoma, for example, or, uh, you know, other kind of MS. There's a whole host of pathology that you might address, as well as like, things that maybe you can't deliver to the brain because of blood-brain barrier, you know, that typically you would go systemically, but they can't get across the blood-brain barrier. So here's an idea for direct delivery. And in this case, the proof of principle was using this inducible mechanism for delivering glial cell line-derived neurotrophic factor. Okay, so this molecule, GDNF, it's been shown to provide benefits to Parkinsonian patients. And it's also actually in clinical trial for ALS right now. But the thing is with the idea of direct delivery of this trophic factor, GDNF, or any factor for that matter, is that it's difficult to adjust the dose or to stop the delivery. Uh, And we learned a valuable lesson, I think, from early trials looking at dopaminergic neurons that are injected into the brain and you have a kind of overstimulation Needless to say, you want to have a kind of ripcord that you can pull, and also you want to be able to calibrate the dose. So to address this, Dr. Svensson's group, what they did is they made a doxycycline-inducible vector, which allowed this inducible, also reversible expression of this therapeutic molecule. They put this vector into human-induced pluripotent stem cell cells that were then differentiated to neuroprogenitors and then put those in an immunocompromised mouse brain. They show that dox, doxycycline could penetrate the graft, so it wasn't precluded from entry into the brain region where it was, you know by the blood-brain barrier. So you could turn this thing on and off, and you could turn it off over multiple cycles by providing and withdrawing the doxycycline, and you got therapeutic levels of GDF expression in vitro. So this is not necessarily a big mechanistic study, or showing that we're on you know way to treating disease necessarily, but it's a great way of implementing this therapy, and uh, it's a useful tool that no doubt Clive has already shared with a bunch of groups looking at preclinical application of this type of therapy in probably non-human primate models. So we can expect to see some interesting stuff coming out of that using this tool, Kiki, and I think it's maybe a little bit of a window into the future of cell-based therapies where we have these kind of control mechanisms so that we can have a, a abort type of mechanism to, to get out if we have some <laughs> kind of pathological complications.
0: It's exciting to be able to have you know something to back it up if something is going wrong so that you can turn it off. But this is really interesting to me. I mean, number one, doxycycline that's an antibiotic. We use, I mean, they're not going to have tooth infections at the same time as they <laughs> I love the multifaceted use of, of these molecules and what they're able to do. And then the other interesting aspect here is like this is glial cell line derived. I mean, we know we're learning more and more about how important glial cells are for development and for proper functioning of neurons. And so to be able to kind of model... You know, it's like, okay, we're going to add this factor in, but not actually add glial cells. Mm-hmm. We're like pretending that the glial cells are here doing their job. It's interesting.
1: Right, which has a lot of implications for MS. You mentioned glia. Absolutely. I immediately think of MS Absolutely. and the whole constellation and neurodegenerative diseases. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: this is cool. Something that's probably going to be in play. While we're talking about glia, I'm going to move on to the unfortunate glioblastoma. Oh, we hate this one. It's probably the most difficult of cancers. It's a major killer and the cure rate is like hasn't moved while everything else has been getting better, hasn't been getting worse for Glio, but it hasn't been improving significantly. So clearly we need a a new approach on this. And a lot of people are working on it. We've talked about it a bunch on the show. And a lot of promising science out there, because it's the most lethal primary brain, brain tumor. But You know, considering how lethal it is, considering how many groups are invested in it, and also considering how hot the idea of microenvironment is to everything, including tumor growth, it's surprising that there have been no studies yet that have kind of interrogated the crosstalk between the glioblastoma stem cells and their niche, their microenvironment. It hasn't really been looked into any detail Well, Jeremy Rich did it. In the cell stem cell story, what they did is they looked at these glioblastoma stem cells and they looked also at their differentiated glioblastoma cell progeny, okay? So they took the stem cells and the progeny and they found that there was a relationship that these progeny cells, they actually accelerated the growth of the GSC-based tumor and Looking into what the differential expression of secreted factors to try and figure out what the link is, they found that another neurotrophic factor, not glial in this case, but brain-derived neurotrophic factor BDNF, was preferentially expressed in the progeny, whereas the glioblastoma stem cells preferentially express the receptor. It's called NTRK2. So they you know, did some more expression analysis to look at the signaling pathway and mechanism, and revealed that there was preferential expression of a molecule called VGF by the stem cells, and this was confirmed in actual patient-derived tumor models. So looking at primary patient tumors, you could see that this expression pattern held up. And interestingly, this VGF molecule serves a, a dual role in this hierarchy. It promotes survival and stemness of the stem cell, but it also supports survival of the progeny, and makes the progeny secrete BDNF, which then feeds back and causes stemness and growth of the stem cells. So collectively, this uh, study shows that the progeny of the glioblastoma stem cells cooperate with the stem cells themselves through this BDNF, NTRK2, VGF, paracrine signaling axis, and all of this together promotes tumor growth and survival. So it gives us a target if we can disrupt at any stage of this yeah. or separate and insulate these cells from each other somehow or target one or the other, that maybe we can disrupt tumor growth and finally make some headway on Clio. Goodness sake.
0: That would be amazing. That would be needed. Yeah. I mean, being able to characterize this pathway specifically is one of the first steps. And then, yeah, get in there at these targets and, and just block it. Block it. Kill it. Get it. Yeah, kill it. (laughs) Get rid of it. Without
1: killing the patient.
0: I mean, that is one of the things. I mean, if you've got a child with glio and you do a BDNF blocker, is that going to affect neuronal development? Because that's going to be something that's a bit more systemic and what effects would that have on the brain overall? And so there are going to be specific targets, maybe for specific subsets of the population who end up with glio. I mean, maybe that'll be the considerations later.
1: Well, for sure, we've been talking in the last few episodes about does neural cell growth continue in adulthood? Does it not? And I think the consensus is that it may. So, yeah, something to think about there. We're staying in neural. We're staying in neural. One more, more study. More neuro. All you neural haters, just one more.
0: Oh come on! Everybody loves neuro, don't they?
1: <laughs> <laughs> How could you not? It's so clever. In this case, this is, I think, a more big picture study. It's not really all about the neuro. It's about appetite, all right? This is also another cool kind of IPS modeling, disease modeling study. This is about obesity. Hmm. So the approach here, I mean, first what we should talk about is the hypothalamus, okay? So the the hypothalamus, it makes up about a third of a percent, okay? 0.3% of the adult brain, human brain at least, but it regulates a lot of stuff, regulates autonomic nervous and endocrine systems, specifically endocrine. It secretes various neurotransmitters and neuropeptides, and neurohormones, and they, these all play critical roles in maintaining a lot of homeostasis, like in reproduction, also stress, you know, fight or flight, immune function, circadian rhythm, and ding, 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 energy metabolism, okay? Specifically mm-hmm. the hypothalamus in the CNS, it coordinates response, to hunger and satiety signals and that determines you know whether you're gonna eat or you're gonna chill out and not eat you know food intake or expenditure so the idea here is it's, let's see what goes on in, in the hypothalamic neurons that may be linked to uh, in this case obesity but of course there's very limited availability of human hypothalamic neurons and this of course hampers the understanding or investigation this mechanism to address this this is uh, Druv Serenes group in cell stem cell just recently came out. They generated human-induced pluripotent stem cells from different patients that were classified as either normal body mass index or super obese, okay? Normal being less than 25, super obese being more than 50 BMI. And this is a big part of the story that I think a lot of neural diff people and neural stem cell people are going to be paying attention to is they created a pretty elaborate and reliable method for making hypothalamic-like neurons out of induced pluripotent stem cells. And these hypothalamic-like neurons were able to secrete arexigenic or anorexigenic neuropeptides. These are the neuropeptides that stimulate either food intake or expenditure. And although these hypothalamic-like neurons, they're called like neurons because They kind of maintain a fetal identity, but they do respond appropriately to metabolic hormones, in this case, which are ghrelin and leptin, and these are the major players in hunger and satiety. So, getting pretty much down to it, and this is the simple part, they pretty much showed what you'd expect, is that the hypothalamic-like neurons from the obesity, the super-obese-induced pluripotent stem cells, they had this dysregulated, quote-unquote, obesogenic disease signature. And they had impaired leptin ghrelin signaling that may uh, or probably underlies the phenotype or the failure to achieve satiety in these patients. So it's not like they really just figured out how to solve it or how to address it. But I think this is a really important platform that they created here for looking at the mechanism of diseases that people have classically attributed to lifestyle or, you know, personal failure or whatever this could maybe get some meat into the idea that obesity is a condition that you are have a, you know a propensity a predilection towards the behaviors because of your genetic signature so this will be really interesting delving into that question
0: yeah, well i mean it does make sense that there would be a genetic profile for that that there would be certain alleles within the population it's a benefit to have more weight to be able to stay warmer in colder climates To have more energy for times when food is scarce. I mean, we have a completely different cultural profile now, but there's, you know, there's a reason why these genetic phenotypes, they still are prevalent, but now they're causing problems because people are living longer. And yeah, so it's trade-offs.
1: I wish you just... Stopped at the first part because that's my whole rationalization when I look in the mirror at my belly. I say, There's a reason for this belly.
0: (laughs) There's a reason for it. That's right. It's good. It's good, this belly. It is good. We need it. It is good. Yeah, recent research also suggests that as you age, having a little bit more weight on you is actually beneficial and that people who weigh less or have less fat stores as they get older have higher risk of dementia and other uh, neurodegenerative diseases. yeah.
1: well, what do you know? What do you know? I'm going to put that in the bin with coffee's good for you, wine's (laughs) good for you, marijuana's good for you, studies. And
0: so is your belly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) There we go.
1: All right. Well, I'll tell you, some people are looking really, really, really basic at disease. And the best thing about this story to me is the approach. And I'm not going to do it justice, so I'm going to try and summarize with just the meat of it. This is Nissim Ben Benisti's group in uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem. They had a paper they published recently in Nature Cell Biology. Nissim Ben Benisti should be noted as he was on the first paper, you know, the Jamie Thompson paper where they derived the first human ES cell line. Yeah, he was the, the man there. Because wow. I think he was the last author because he donated the embryos. So this is, a, this is a guy who's been in in the field forever. And recently they developed these human pluripotent stem cells that were haploid, okay? So they were 1N, 23 chromosomes, but stable, you know? Normal, haplotype, or karyotype, even though not you know normal, considering they had half the requisite chromosomes. Totally viable, and what's so great about this as a platform for basic science is that unlike diploid cell line, where you have two copies of every gene, if you were to do a mutagenic screen on a haploid line, anytime you hit a gene, you totally disable that gene product. Whereas in a diploid line, if you hit the gene, you hit one allele, the other's still there. Mm-hmm. So you only really catch things that have a phenotype with the heterozygote dysfunction. This If it hits the gene, it's gone. So they did a a mutagenic screen using CRISPR-Cas and uh, targeting 18,166 protein-coding genes, pretty much all of them, not really, but a lot of them. And they pretty much, you know, were looking at, if they took the cell in and hit it with this mutagenic screen, they were looking at what caused a deficiency in growth or overgrowth, uh, reasoning that these would be the essential genes for pluripotent stem cell phenotype and growth. And bottom line is they showed that there was a lot, a lot, a lot of genes that fell into this category. They either had a phenotype that was either growth restriction or growth amplification. You know, just as a handful, you should read the paper because there's just so much to, to learn from this. But just as an example, are a couple of examples, one Insight was the team identified seven essential transcription factors that now, I guess, may, I don't know that they're going to be the new standard, but they give a kind of new lens into what are the essential factors for pluripotent stem cell phenotype. Those were SAL, S-A-L-L-4, POW-5-F1, which is oct 34 we knew. PRDM-14, which has usually been associated with germ cell phenotype. NANOG, we already knew. foxb one I haven't heard about that. MYBL-2, I haven't heard about that. MYCN, haven't heard about that. So maybe that's going to be a fertile reservoir there for factors that may be important and worthy of future study. And I thought another thing on the other side of that, factors that seem to have a a growth repressive role that are important so that these self-renewing ESLs don't just go crazy. Among 14 distinct P53 target pathways, they found a lot of growth-restricting genes that seem to be in the IGF-1 mTOR axis, okay? So PI3 kinase AKT signaling, which is a major, major liability for cancer and oncogenesis, seems to be really restricted in ES cells in maintaining a quote-unquote normal non-growth aberrant phenotype. So clearly there's a link there between the teratomas we see from ES cells when they go wild or the oncogenic potential to say the least, in ES cells that we really got to make sure that all these IGF mTOR signaling pathway components are intact if we're ever going to use these cells for therapy or we risk introducing neoplasia. So Mm -hmm. a nice basic study from Nissim. He's probably in line for the Nobel Prize. I hope he gets it.
0: Yeah. So the basics of this study are really, I I think, what's the The important part is like being able to really, really know which are the genes that are responsible and know when you're dealing with these pluripotent stem cells and potentially creating a cell mass that'll be transplanted into a person, what is going to, you know, do you have the right growth-restricting genes there? But the second thing that's probably not covered here, though, is... You know, the epigenetic factor or then, you know, when you have a diploid cell, you've got the imprinting where like one of the chromosomes, you know, the gene is turned off, one is turned on, which is the one that is turned on and which is turned off. And so there are definitely differential factors at play when you're talking about the full complement in a diploid cell that's, you know, expressing a phenotype. But I think this is good for getting at the basics of what are the genes and what do we need to be looking at? You're like, oh, let me think about that.
1: (laughs) Let me take that in. Yes. Take it
0: in. Yeah.
1: I concur. I concur.
0: And have you finished your roundup? Is that what you got?
1: That's it. That's all I got for you. I'm deep in thought. And I think we've made a change for the future of mankind, Kiki. Not me.
0: (laughs) That's right. Other scientists out there have, they're changing the future of mankind. That's what they're working on. And that's what we're talking about right now. But it is about time for us to get to our interview. But before we get to the interview, Stem Cell Technologies would like you to know about the specialized cell culture and differentiation medium required to maintain and validate their commercially available IPS cell lines. The StemDiff Trilineage Differentiation Kit provides a simple culture assay to functionally validate the ability of new or established human ES and IPS cell lines to differentiate to the three germ layers mesoderm, endoderm, and ectoderm. To learn more about stem cells' trilineage differentiation kit, visit www.stemcell.com trilineage. That's stemcell.com slash trilineage. All right, so now into our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Valeria Orlova, principal investigator at the Leiden University Medical Center. Her lab uses stem cells to study the blood vessels and vasculature, and she's joining us today to talk about her work and latest findings. Dr. Orlova, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast.
2: Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast.
0: It's great to have you here. I know we've got a big time difference. You're in the Netherlands. We are spread out across the United States. This is the international episode that we're working on today. We were having a nice conversation before we hit the record button. Can you tell us a little bit and our audience a little bit about your path into studying pluripotent stem cells and what your lab focuses on specifically now?
2: So basically in my group, we use uh, human-induced pluripotent stem cells to create in vitro models of uh, vascular diseases. And the main reason we use uh, human-induced pluripotent stem cells is because uh, we can derive not only endotelia cells, pericytes and vascular smooth muscle cells, so the cells which actually make the blood vessel, but we can also derive all other cell types relevant uh, for vascular disease, such as inflammatory cells and uh, tissue-specific cells, such as cardiomyocytes or brain cells, for instance.
1: So, Valeria, you know, we talk a lot in our roundup our, every episode, we have a roundup of the current events and new stories in the literature. And recently, in the last you know year, pretty much we're getting a lot of stories about one this kind of three D architecture of differentiation, the organoid, and how we can get closer to like organ-specific function by creating mm-hmm. these three D organoids. But now, more recently, the major investment and import seems to be placed in in the vascularization of these organoids. So you need to have vessels both to get to large size, but it seems to me that like the function there is really generic just to have the plumbing there so that you can get to bigger tissue. Is that really the focus of your lab is getting vessels kind of as a conduit for blood flow or for feeding these larger organoids? Or are you looking more nuanced into uh, the specific function of endothelium in different contexts?
2: Indeed. So I must say, yeah, of course, in terms of uh, uh, vascularization of engineered uh, tissue constructs in the telia cells and, uh, play an extremely important role because they need to deliver all the oxygen and nutrients once these tissues are growing larger. But actually, my primary interest is indeed not so much vascularization uh, for regenerative medicine purposes or you know to let this organoids to grow bigger but rather i'm looking at the role of endothelial cells and endothelial cell uh, pathology in the development of different disease conditions because i mean it's not so much is known about this but i can really say that basically endothelial cell dysfunction play an important role not only in cardiovascular diseases, but it's becoming more and more evident that it also plays a role in neurodegenerative conditions, vascular dementia, autoimmune diseases, and many, many other conditions. So we are focusing on endothelial cells with the main idea we want to understand better the, all the pathologies which underline development of all these different diseases.
0: Recently, you've specifically come out with a paper that was in uh, stem cell reports looking at this, the inflammatory responses of the endothelium and looking at the differences between endothelial cells and these human-induced pluripotent stem cell endothelial cells. So can you talk a little bit about what you were doing there and what you hope to find?
2: basically two major, one of the most important features of endothelial cells is uh, that they basically, they serve as a selective barrier for, let's say, our inflammatory cells. In normal condition, non-pathological conditions, endothelial cells, they restrict immune cells from entering to our tissues. However, for example, if you have tissue damage or infection, you really, so in our endothelial cells, they are ready to respond via rapid upregulation of different pro receptors on their surface, so that actually inflammatory cells can get inside of the tissue and resolve inflammation. And that's why we were very, very much interested to see how these inflammatory responses, and on one hand, so it's basically decreasing endothelial barrier function, increasing the cell permeability, and also increasing expression of this pro-adhesive receptors on their surface, are different in iPS-derived endothelial cells compared to primary endothelial cells.
1: Yeah, and so this was critical, you know, as a guy who's focused mm-hmm particularly on endothelial cell differentiation of ES cells myself, I was really glad someone finally came around to doing a rigorous study about this. And I know the the conclusions are more nuanced and that they're similar, they have endothelial Mm -hmm. function that's similar to primary ECs, but the real takeaway for me was the, I don't know you'd call them deficiencies, but at the very least major differences in terms of the inflammatory responsiveness of the ESL-derived ECs or Mm IPS-derived ECs. And it raises the question, kind of, are these ECs really ECs? What is, would you say, the new definition of IPS-derived ECs that your uh, paper points towards in terms of their utility as well as their limitations?
2: I must say, indeed, uh, still, if we look, for example, at the barrier function, so in a way, we found that iPS-derived endothelial cells do have comparable barrier function, but also organization of these uh, junctional complexes similar to primary Cs. And they do respond to some barrier-disrupting factors, such as, for example, thrombin, also not as strongly as primary Cs. However, what we also found that in terms of Inflammatory responses, even though we were able to increase upregulation of, of some pro-adhesive uh, receptors on their surface, such as like e-selectin or ICOM-1, expression of some other adhesive receptors such as vcam one was uh, not as evident as in primary endothelial cells. What I think that indeed the endothelial cells were making At this moment, from IPS derived cells, even though they can be used to model some inflammatory response, but they don't respond exactly the same as primary endothelial cells. However, here I must say, I can add, because of course we do have some ongoing work where we think we can, so some preliminary evidence that we think we can train, I can say, our IPS derived endothelial cells to have a bit better inflammatory responses, stronger inflammatory responses.
0: At the end of your paper, you sum up and you say that you've got this, you know, really good comprehensive characterization, and, but you also say that you've got this, the inflammatory responses, that it's really consistent between these various lines of induced pluripotent-derived embryonic endothelial cells. You know, the different lines you can have a, a benchmark for I guess this would work for research and modeling, but you're still, it's still not getting at the exact level of what's going on in the natural cells.
2: I agree, because basically what we also know, and I think uh, the entire field uh, is more or less uh, has the same opinion about iPS-derived endothelial cells, is that if anything, the cells we are deriving now, they have more arterial-like phenotype. So that they, and actually, this is not uh, the vascular bed where basically inflammation happens. Because normally, upon inflammation, so capillaries, C, so venules do respond. So the question can we actually make better venular like in the telia cells from IPS cells? But on the other hand, uh, still some receptors uh, we showed that they were upregulated, such as ICOM1, and we actually. We did, of course, in this stem cell report, uh, paper study uh, um, with um, leucoside cell line. But recently, we also confirmed same results with the primary peripheral blood-derived monocytes as well as IPS-derived monocytes. We still, we basically, we know that we can use this IPS-derived disease to model in the tele lecocyte interactions in vitro. And of course, the biggest advantage here would be indeed that we can derive at the same time both. We can derive iPS-derived ECs, but also monocytes from the same patient, for example, so isogenic cells, which is impossible to get from primary material.
1: So, uh, Valeria, you kind of alluded to the consensus in the field that the phenotype of ECs from iPS and ESL differentiation are primarily or perhaps majority arterial. Along those same lines and kind of underlying the questions regarding the differential barrier function, you know, it's been noted that amongst the vascular beds in an adult or postnatally, that there's an organ-specific vascular function or specificity. Mm -hmm. Do you think that in these ESL cultures that we're all working with and getting ECs, endothelial cells, by this generic moniker, that perhaps we're maybe representing a lot of different EC subtypes from different potentially organ-specific endothelial subtypes, and that may account for the range of barrier function that you see in an ES differentiation culture. I mean, we know that the blood-brain barrier ECs should have very different barrier function than, say, mm-hmm. the liver. So if you had both of those kind of organ subtypes in a diff, would you expect to see both differential EC barrier function on the kind of cell Single-cell resolution?
2: I would agree with you. We, need, uh, we might have, at the end, in our cultures, cells which you know not uh, homogeneous. And in this case, it would be very interesting to look at single-cell resolution. So, for example, either using single-cell sequencing, whether indeed in the telia cells we are differentiating using this, for example, common Mesoderm induction protocol was ending, still having uh, different subtypes in these cultures.
1: But today, but- you haven't really looked into that because I know on your lab webpage, because I'm very interested in your work, <laughs> uh, that you kind of hint at the that you're kind of able to glean some different EC subtypes within your ES cell cultures without giving away the farm. Maybe you could tell us—is that true? Do you have definitions that uh, identify different organ subtypes within the differentiation?
2: We do have indeed ongoing uh, studies where we are trying to differentiate endodelia cells from different subtypes of mesoderm, and uh, for this, for now, I must say we only looked at uh, whole uh, Balcarne sick. We also trying at this moment to do some. Single-cell RNA seq from this of these Telia cells coming from different subtypes, but we haven't done any uh, functional assessment of the cells. So this is something we are basically once we have the transcriptome data, we want to look indeed whether these functional responses whether they will be different among different endothelial cells differentiated from different mesoderm subtypes.
0: So stepping back a little bit and taking a I guess a broader view, I mean people talk. You mentioned already that inflammation is responsible for many disorders or at least implicated in many disorders throughout the body. And coming from what Dalen is talking about, there seems as though there would be varied and differential inflammatory responses and different molecules potentially involved in these disorders in different parts of the body. But at the same time, is inflammation? I mean, the endothelium inflammation. This is huge. People are changing their diets so they can reduce their inflammation. They're popping pills every day to reduce inflammation. You know, what are the big challenges that are still to be gotten past in your work? I can say that
2: you know, basically on uh, myocardial infarctions, all relevant with heart health. But uh, myself, I really think. For better health, we need really to take care of our endothelial cells. And in this case, of course, inflammation is very important because it's more like a part of defense response in our tissues. But uh, for many diseases, indeed, if we can prevent, you know, we can reduce inflammatory responses in endothelial cells. This can be extremely beneficial. And uh, something I I must say, I'm really fascinated. By. That's why I also work a bit on the blood-brain barrier because um, it's becoming more and more accepted that indeed the endothelial cell dysfunction might play also enormous role in neurodegeneration. But at the same time, I also think it might even play extremely enormous role in uh, basically uh, development of uh, intelligence. Because when we think about blood-brain barrier and different organisms. So actually sharks, they don't have endothelial cell lining in their vessels, in the brain. Only, the vessels are only made of glia cells. And whereas when we look at dolphins, so the dolphins already have, do have endothelial cell lining. So it might be that endothelial cell lining is extremely important for better insulation of all this, you know, parenheimer cells in the brain and uh, that maybe also to promote better connections between uh, like uh, interneurons so i really think you know maybe in the future we can also make a better uh, like a smarter and of course initially mouse <laughs> uh-huh. but then maybe <laughs> hopefully we can also make a smarter human by <laughs> making better in the Chileous cells
1: <laughs> wow all right so we gotta kind of <laughs> developmental, uh, evo-devo uh, role for endothelium in uh, intelligence. We talked a bit the role of endothelium in disease pathology, fibrosis. Mm-hmm. One of the things yep. I think that most people who work with endothelium in, in the ES cell field will probably agree on is that it's a real challenge to get the endothelium to stay endothelium, that they very readily undergo this endothelial mesenchymal transition that a lot of people think may underlie the pathology of fibrosis, is endothelial cells transitioning to these fibroblasts and mm-hmm. you know, creating these fibrotic masses in disease, in diseased organs. So do you think that, and of course I'm sure that you could exploit that to model this kind of pathology, but in the near term, in terms of using endothelium to recapitulate endothelial function, make vessels and stay vessels, What are the challenges to getting these cells to work, to stay endothelial? And how are you going about kind of interrogating identity within the endothelial subpopulation?
2: Yes, so I also, I entirely agree that this uh, iPS derived endothelial cells, they are very unstable and Especially during, uh, you know, initial uh, days of differentiation. So I would say from day six to day ten, when the cells, the cells appear, it's very important uh, indeed uh, to so blocking of TGF-beta signaling is actually we do use simply because we know it also helps to maintain the cell identity in these cultures. And uh, for the expansion of endothelial cells, this is the reason we use this specialized medium from uh, Invitrogen, which we simply supplement with vascular endothelial growth effect and basic FGF, because we found that in this particular culture conditions, iPS-derived endothelial cells remain the most stable. However, of course, uh, for what besides, and we can actually, we can maintain them so that they maintain expression of all chilia specific markers. However, what I think indeed, uh, in order to be able to propagate them for longer time, so we might still look for a better medium composition. In addition, also maybe uh, administration of flow might also be very important. I Really, I don't know yet why these IPS-derived endothelial cells, why they're not as stable as primary endothelial cells.
0: I think there was some research recently trying to get uh, cardiomyocytes to create a heart patch, the heart patch basically, and they're trying to make it thicker and thicker. And, and one of the mechanisms they're using to enable that is actually like vibration, you know, taking the, the platform, the, the stage that they're growing it on and, and having some amount of, I guess it would be a mechanical shear factor that would be applied to influence the growth of those cells in a, in a healthier or, I guess, a more physiologically relevant fashion. Do you see more of that being applied in, uh, this kind of, in this work with the endothelial cells, you know, trying to set them up because there's vascular flow? There are physical factors at play that maybe don't exist in a dish.
2: Yes, in this case, indeed, because uh, for now, for all our differentiation protocols, we are using uh, simple, let's say, 2D protocols. When we induce differentiation, so the cells cultured on top of these uh, flat, you know, plastic dishes, they don't have any extracellular matrix around them. So, and this is also the reason. So, when we differentiate our endothelial cells, we can isolate them. But of course, for functional models we are now trying to move away from 2d culture towards 3d culture where we can actually make hollow tubular like structures inside of hydrogel that we can for example also start continuously perfusing with medium so that they can also have a certain flow going through these tubes and we hope uh, by this we can indeed improve uh, in these endothelial cells, but also maybe make them more mature and even maybe a bit more stable in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm really fascinated by this just as an idea what Kiki brought up and you addressed right there is this idea of endothelium kind of is defined fundamentally by 3D criteria. You know, its mm-hmm. birthplace is 3D, it's this hypoxic, you know, 3D organ environment where there's an impetus to form these vascular tubules and distribute metabolites and oxygen, et cetera. So I know it's maybe not safe to go directly into humans, but I'm just surprised that we haven't arrived at an in vivo assay that is maybe superior to any other in vitro qualification of ECs, being that that's where the cells really live. Is it that it doesn't exist? Or is it that it's just, it's too complicated to get quantitative readout? What are the challenges to getting a real in vivo readout going? Or what is there, the readout that exists that is accepted as gold standard?
2: I would say for now, we do have an in vivo readout, is, and which is in a way considered as a gold standard, is uh, this is so-called matrigel uh, plaque assay, where we simply mix in the telial cells with the stroma cells, and then we can transplant them subcutaneously into the mice. And indeed, the the idea that through endothelial cells, they should be able to make perfused blood vessels inside of these matrigel plaques. However, from our experience, we know that still there is... because. Yeah, since we're using non-defined matrix like Matrigel, there is also high batch-to-batch variation. So often, uh, before we do this assay, we have to test uh, the ECM components, as well as stroma cells might also affect the performance of the cells in in these Matrigel plaque assays. And uh, that's why uh, we also, we're trying to define more robust in vitro models where we can really, we hope that they will... uh, help us to address the question whether the endothelial cells we are deriving from induced pluripotent stem cells whether they're true in the cells or not
0: Sounds like there is a lot of work still to do People are working on the organoids the mini brains the you know multicellular complexes when these implants like you're talking about I mean are we going to get there what is the progress like are we going to get to the point where we're going to be like hey here's a big Bunch of muscle cell. We're gonna fix that damaged tissue. Are we getting there?
2: I think uh, we are partially getting there, especially now taking in uh, yeah the recent publication from Fred Gage lab about va- functional vascularized brain organoids. It's fascinating, and indeed, uh, I think now with the work we do with the cardiac microtissues, where we simply mix cardiomyocytes with endothelial cells. We also, in principle, we haven't, I I said, tried to transplant them. This would be one of the ways to see, indeed, whether upon transplantation we can get a perfused vasculature inside of these uh, tissues. I also think, indeed, having some other cell components around in endothelial cells might really help in terms of might stabilize, you know, the vessels. Because even cardiomycetes, they are known to secrete a lot of prone factors that also support in the telecell survival. Maybe we need the more cells, different cells.
0: Is there a place to, lessons to be learned from the angiogenic factors in tumors, you know, tumors that promote their own blood vasculature, right?
2: Yeah, this is something I must say we are looking at simply because what we also know, for example, when we make 3D constructs, we, even though we, of course, we can get more let's say vascular-like structures in these constructs however for example pericytes that we also incorporate into these constructs they don't look they don't have exactly the same morphology as in uh, primary vessels so what we are looking at tumors and tumor vessels and we're trying to understand which factors they secrete so that we, maybe we can either add these factors or block them to improve, let's say, maturation of our blood vessels in vitro.
1: Wow. All right. So that's we've run in the (laughs) gamut. Tumor, cancer, regenerative. We had a little bit of evolution, intelligence. (laughs) So you're doing it all. Dr. Oliva, it's very impressive. Congratulations on this publication, Stem Cell Reports. And uh, Kiki, we got Finale going out with the final question for Dr. Orlova. What's it going to be?
0: The end of our interviews on the show now, we ask one of three questions to our guests. And these are intended to stimulate conversation about the real lives of scientists to provide, you know, advice, encouragement, reassurance to younger career uh, scientists at an earlier stage of their career about the future that they may be uh, embarking upon. But for you, I would love to know, if you hadn't chosen science as a career, you're so interested in so many different factors. If you hadn't chosen science as a career, what else would you have done and why?
2: You know, I must say, to be honest, uh, I haven't done anything except science in my life. So, because I am working in the lab since I was like very, very young. And I'm really, really happy. However, when I was, I must say, around 10 years old, I think my dream was uh, to become underwater photographer, and I was really dreaming to go diving with great white sharks. So it still would be science, but then maybe not uh, medical research, but rather something like marine biology. Now it's my hobby, so...
0: <laughs> underwater <laughs> photography? So like, uh, even though no, sharks, diving Just sharks. sharks. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before. Someone's saying, my hobby, it's diving for sharks, you know. Sharks. Wow. science.
2: Uh, science remains my major hobby, and it's my major interest in this life. And I, to be honest, yeah, all other hobbies, they come and go, and science stays.
1: Well, listen, I think it's for the best. If you had not been a scientist, you would have been eaten by sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Sharks. All right. Well, that's um, one of the coolest, I think, would have been that we've heard so far. So congratulations.
0: And thank you so much for joining us today. It was just great getting the chance to speak with you today, Dr. Olova.
2: Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks uh, a lot for this podcast. It's also, I'm really enjoying listening to it.
0: Thank you. Everyone else out there, thank you so much for joining us and listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at StemCellPodcast or email info at StemCellPodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at StemCellPodcast.com and be sure to tune in for our next episode.